0: Hello and welcome to the Spine Nerd Podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Hovens.
1: I'm Jason Kung.
0: And uh, we're back, guys. Uh, Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for uh, sticking with us while we have gotten our feet back under us and getting the podcast up and running again. Um, Today, uh, Dr. Kung and I just wanted to kind of come on and talk a little bit about everything that's been going on in the world of neuromodulation. So we are currently in uh, the middle of 2023, and this year has been a very loud year uh, for neuromodulation. And I think there has just been some topics that we felt were necessary to kind of digest together, and hopefully digest for all of us as a community as we're trying to really get a bearing on where things are and hopefully where things are going. Um, so, uh, Dr. Kung I think one of the first things that um, I'll leak, I'll kind of. Give it a little tease, guys. We're gonna eventually get to the Cochrane study, um, which is probably the biggest thing that's been uh, happened so far this year. But let's start with some light, lighter affair. Uh, um, so there's been a lot of talk so far this year about um, implantable pulse generator size. Um, Dr. Khan, what are what what are your thoughts on uh, IPG size as we start seeing that as uh, a part of the neuromodulatory wars, as well as something that I think a lot of the companies are starting to think about from a marketing perspective
1: yeah my notes the first line i have is ipgs 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 so that's just like you said it's a hot topic right now a lot of new devices uh, currently being approved by the fda either approved or in the process of um and one of them you know uh, talking about size you know smaller isn't necessarily better uh it seems like abbott is uh at least uh, suggesting that that might be the case, but it's not just about size, right, Dr. Hovis? Yeah, it's not never just
0: about size.
1: The recharging requirement for the uh, the new Abbott IPG is pretty re- remarkable, from what they're saying, right? The the, re- the recharging uh, burden or the amount of how frequently someone needs to recharge it it may even go down to you know four or five times a year, or m- maybe just once a month. I mean, it's some pretty remarkable stuff.
0: Yeah. And so, for anybody who is uh, paying attention on the YouTube channel, holding up uh, two of the small, the two smallest IPGs that are currently on the market. Um, so, the Metronic Intellis and Abbott Eterna. Um, and so, they are um, by dimensions uh, the smallest. Abbott is a little bit smaller in terms of its height and its width. Um, the Metronic is a little bit thinner in its profile. And so, you know, when you kind of look at total volume, I think the Abbott device uh, by total volume is just a little bit under uh, the Medtronic uh, IntelliS battery. Um, But then, you know, obviously then you go from there and there's actually quite a big jump. I I remember seeing um, somebody post the kind of volume of the IPGs um, and as you kind of step up from these two uh, to Boston Scientific and then all the way up to Nevro, which has the, the largest volume. Uh, IPG. Um, And so just thinking about, does a smaller uh, battery lead to decreased infection risk, decreased risks for the patient of irritation from the battery? I think anybody who's done this long enough has seen patients that just really get irritated by the battery or the the battery can actually cause uh, some discomfort uh, for our patients. And so that's one of the questions that we're all trying to figure out as we have the technology now to be able to create these amazing batteries that are smaller. Um, that require that charge quicker and you know, require less time on the charger and then in particularly the things you know when i started uh, that patients would have to charge every day um, sometimes for a couple of hours a day to be able to use those and then anybody who's even you know been doing this for beyond 10 years uh, probably can say that they remember a time that you know people were charging you know, exponentially more than that so I, I think it's it's a very interesting conversation that we're having.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, it's all about you know, trying to make it as easy for the patient to get the relief, right? So if they have to constantly be thinking about, you know, kind of having this uh, fear of running out of the battery and having difficulty with the charging pad. Uh, it can lead to just, you know, kind of losing faith in the device and then eventually just not using it. So I think it's really exciting that uh, um, we're starting to think more about the technology and in addition to the waveforms uh, to try to help people get better relief I will say that with the uh, with the Abbott uh, device, the Eterna IPG, you know these stated claims of the uh, recharge uh, frequency is based off of a standard burst setting that they have uh, listed out there. So, you know if there's any deviation from that, uh, the patients needing some sort of uh, re- uh, recalibrations, I would assume that the recharging times would, would vary, but. Uh, certainly excited to see how this uh, plays out in uh, the real world
0: I think that was actually one of the first questions that I asked uh, our avid rep uh, was when I saw the advertising material that said as few as five recharges in a year uh, I was like how many patients do you have on the setting
1: mm-hmm.
0: for everybody out there her answer was zero um I, I know I didn't have any patients that were on the settings so, so. Uh, yeah obviously you know part of it's marketing um but you know even if it's not five a year but it's you know one a month or a, even a couple of months yeah. obviously that's those are huge improvements compared to what we've seen for patients in the past and so i mean i think this is these are steps hopefully in the right direction as you said you know, it makes it easier for patients to be able to access the therapy and just not lose faith because of the battery that gets in the way of the actual
1: so if anyone's been listening to the news lately or watching listening to the radio or watching on TV, you know, everyone's talking about AI. Isn't that right, Brian? AI yeah, everything There's a lot of it will G- be everything, right? Yeah. AI podcasts, eventually we won't even need doctors to be talking. We can just have two chat GPT plugins talking to each other.
0: But they might We're be just more plugging in all of our notes. They'll be the sad thing is that they, they can actually recreate the magic personal communication.
1: But uh, it's, so we bring that up now because uh, Never has a new IPG coming out, they call it the IQ, um, and basically, that's going to be helping to do a lot of the reprogramming, and even, uh, yeah, the reprogramming is done within the app uh, that the patient has on their phone, so I think that's another big leap, is that there's no longer going to be uh, just the controller, but there's going to be a uh, phone with an app on it that can basically recommend new settings for patients or help them troubleshoot their current stimulator to try to get them better uh, therapy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting, right? I I think, you know, as we were kind of preparing, you brought up like not having to have, you know, reach out to somebody else to kind of make these daily changes, to be able to figure out how to optimize what the patient's experiences with the device and something that actually kind of feeds back and is able to make some of those changes uh, on its own. That's, I mean, it's a really interesting Thought process um, and, you know, and it's it's obvious very new this was one of the biggest things that um, that they brought out and so you know, there's a lot of people talking about it because you know, AI is a is a hot word. You know, I, I think the, the cynic in me um, because I got to have a good bit of cynicism uh, whenever we look at things that are hot in the media uh, that become marketing for companies, just wonders how useful this will actually be in on in an everyday basis for patients, you know, thinking about m- most of the patients that, that particularly, you know, uh, particularly ones that I think, you know, find good relief from, you know, a couple of different programs that don't necessarily, may or may not actually need something that's constantly evolving, um, the way that their therapy is being, I don't know, yeah. what are your thoughts? Yeah.
1: Yeah, certainly it's, you know, it's, uh, how it plays out for a patient that has chronic leg pain that uses... Some combination of paresthesias when they're out doing stuff versus paresthesia free when they're at home relaxing. You know, know, how is that going to change that? Are they going to have to flip their uh, their own routine uh, to kind of go with the new stimulation? I mean, I'm sure there's going to be uh, you know as it rolls out, it's going to be uh, something that will be customized to each patient. But I think at least having the option to you know, hey, it's eleven o'clock at night and feeling a little bit off, you know, versus kind of waiting until the next day to call the company rep or contact one of us That hey, just going to the app and just punch in some things that are uh, going wrong or feeling off and possibly getting a new program that night. I think that will be a, a really good thing.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I agree. I mean, I think that aspect of it, like being able to just decrease the number of touch points that the patient has to have. So that way, I think as we were talking about with the better, right, less things getting in the way of the therapy of the patient um, that hopefully will lead to more happy patients with more successful. So I'm, I'm really interested to see how this kind of plays out in, in the real world. I I haven't uh, personally had experience with this as of yet. I haven't talked to the very you know a, a large enough end to really have a feel for what it's doing. Um, yeah, it's it's, an, it's an, one of the fun things to watch you know, over a couple of interactions and effects. Yeah, one, think- one of the things I think um, you know also that has kind of come along. You we know, talked about you know, batteries and. In, in ai I mean, there there has been some kind of dis- a little bit more discussion i think on on primary cells you know primary cells uh, being a non-rechargeable uh, battery as opposed to a rechargeable battery which has you know I, I think for all intents and purposes become the standard of the rechargeable but figuring out how we you know now that the batteries are so much more powerful and the technology uh, that is being utilized is so much more advanced you know are there ways to be able to allow patients to not have to have any charge burden at all right You're at, forget about like we were talking about earlier about decreasing uh, the recharge burden, burden but if there are actual ways to to make it so that patients can have you know essentially no recharge burden, where it's just them in the therapy and we're going to see how how well people do without having to deal with the device um, I think one of the things that you had talked about earlier was that historically this is something that we've left for a slightly older population maybe less technologically advanced they want to interact with it. right you know, but I, don't know, I mean, what are your thoughts if we start thinking about that as potentially an, an option that's yeah. been presented for other patients, too?
1: I mean, if, if that becomes the standard, I think it's going to do it's going to be widely accepted, you know, no matter if you know how to use a smartphone or not. I mean, where everyone's busy nowadays. You have some people have multiple jobs. Some people have a really busy primary job. They have families at home. You know finding time to recharge may seem like oh it just take some time out of the day but there's so many other things to juggle you know so if there's a way that we can have it so that you know like you said the therapy is in make some changes to the programming if you need to for certain situations but if not otherwise you don't need to recharge it it's on and once it runs its course we switch it out i mean that would be the uh, i think that would be the the standard if that becomes widely accepted yeah,
0: yeah i think i think it's interesting i I think I'm probably pretty similar to a lot of other people. I don't use primary cells very often. I did just actually, um, I just did a, a post-op check on patient that need to put a primary cell in, um, but the main reason was because she's 83. And so it just seemed yeah. like it was the, the best option with talking, making sure that everything going to be as easy as possible. To get her, it's, you know, I think it's, it's, it's nice. I and mean, we can still run some complex programming on, on a device like that and be able to, you know, which is different than, I think even mm-hmm. go back five or six years you know, we couldn't run very complex programming. And so, you know, we have a DTM program running for that patient right now. And for all intents and purposes, I have hope and believe that that's in the last year quite some time. And she's, um, but yeah, I mean, I think if, you know, the, I think the theme so far today is the less things that get in the way of delivering this therapy to patients, yes. the more acceptable it's going to be for patients, the easier it's going to be for them to uh, to really get the most out.
1: Yeah, I don't think we can uh, not talk about, know since you said DTM, but that. Gonna... To mention at least the Inceptive IPG from Medtronic, uh, that uh, looks like their their aim with that is to also incorporate in closed loop stimulation into this new IPG, and from what I heard, uh, it can also incorporate in DTM as well. So um, I, I think this is still being worked out. Uh, they're doing a study in Australia right now, feasibility study, um, but that is also on the uh, in the pipeline.
0: Yeah. You know, and for those who are listening, who may not have um, kind of heard us talk about neuromodulation before, I think, I think this is the area, this is the reason why so many of us are so excited. We're literally doctors who get to sit at the kind of bleeding edge of technology, right? We're, we're talking about AI and we're talking about, you know, new, new IVGs and different ways of utilizing, uh, electricity to be able to change people's lives. Like, it's a pretty amazing thing. You know, and I, Yeah. when I, when I first got exposed to pain medicine, you know, it was 15 years ago at this point, right? I mean, like it was a part of things, like obviously the North study had been published and like it was there. Um, but you know, it wasn't to the extent that we're seeing now we're kind of literally like talking about multiple different devices, multiple different things going on a lot, uh, so much that's coming to be able to, uh, to help our patients. Um, and then we end up getting slapped in the face with a, uh, paper that i think most of us in this field have not received very well
1: um i would agree <laughs> that that is a very nice way of putting it so, yes i think, think there has been uh, some
0: yeah i mean it's, it's been probably the, the the biggest outrage uh that i've seen out of pain docs probably ever i mean i, I wasn't a pain physician when um those uh, uh articles were being published about epidils not helping patients uh with stenosis but I, I mean this this feels even bigger uh, than a solo article um, and so the Cochrane review which is very widely respected accepted for the medicine as being a very prominent um, voice if not possibly even the gold standard for many uh, avenues of medicine uh, came out with a review uh, that uh, was concluded with the statement Data in this review do not support the use of spinal cord stimulation to manage low back pain outside of clinical trial. Current evidence suggests spinal cord stimulation probably does not have sustained clinical benefits that would outweigh the cost and risks of the surgical intervention. Um, wow. <laughs> what were your initial thoughts when you first um, heard about it, read it? Um, like, I, I think we'll dive, obviously, deeper to... Into why it's this is so frustrating. Uh, But what were your initial thoughts
1: when you read this? I mean, it was shocking disbelief, right? Just uh, you know, from all the studies that have been coming out, you know, over the last even just one or two years, and then seeing this, I had to read it a few times and just make sure I was reading the correct thing. Uh, It just didn't didn't quite seem real to me. So, yeah, just. Very, very confused, shocked, and uh, then I was just trying to gather a way to dive into it myself, and look into it. Yeah. How about you?
0: i mean, the same, right? I mean, I, I, it's it's it blows my mind that when you know, anybody who's who does what we do or pays attention to what we do or has listened to any of our podcasts where we've talked about the vast amount of data that's been published, you know, these huge landmark studies that have been published, you know, from North. We've already talked about. Uh, today through, you know, through any of the other uh, big trials, you know, Senza and Sunburst and uh, the DTM study or the Vogue study, um, how you can look at that data and believe that spinal cord stimulation is not of benefit, you know, granted, okay, this is for low back. Okay? This is That's what they're, uh, that's what this is um, targeting. But it was, yeah, I mean, it was a, it, it felt, it felt almost as crazy as um, reading, the headlines that there was a neuromodulation company that was giving fake leads to physicians.
1: to impact. Right, which we I didn't read that on. article will
0: probably don't need to touch on that because that that's a crazy story for, you know, you know, water cooler talk. Um, yeah, but that's I mean like when I when I read that article, I, I felt like somebody punched me. I, I think that was the initial impression of reading the um, at least the, the first time through the abstract. And uh, obviously reading the headlines out of the Cochrane, but so let's, you know, I think both of us obviously disagree with this because, you know, that's why we're shocked. Um, obviously we probably wouldn't use this if we didn't think that they were actually the helpful patients. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe we can kind of start going through some of the reasonings why um, yeah. we don't think that this is makes a lot of sense. Why it's so hard because my understanding is Cochrane doesn't allow for updates on their reviews for at least a period of time i don't know what that period of time i believe it's years um, but it's it is going to be a period of time that the Cochrane review does not believe that spinal cord simulation is appropriate for
1: yeah so just as a quick review for the study itself um, it was done out of uh, australia and it was uh, it was a meta review looking at uh, several thousand trials comparing and their criteria for inclusion was comparing spinal cord stimulation either to no treatment or to placebo. And they wanted to assess the effects, including benefits and harms of spinal cord stimulation for people with low back pain, just like you said, Brian. Um, and the conclusion you already mentioned that you know basically they didn't support it and didn't have any sustained clinical benefits that would outweigh the costs. Um, so the trials that they, they look for, uh, uh, were through some of the five largest databases, Medline, Central, Embase, clinicaltrials.gov. They searched up to June of 2022, and out of 4,776 trials, um, they found 113 full-text papers, which all related to 58 trials uh, based on the titles and abstracts. So from the 58, they then eliminated 19 as they deemed that the comparator was not relevant. So of note, you know, they excluded trials that compared uh, spinal cord stimulation waveforms to each other's um, spinal cord stimulation versus revision surgery or versus uh, um, other sorts of surgical interventions, and they eventually came down to 13 trials that were eligible for inclusion up to June 2022. Um, There was one trial that was then added later on that was published in October 2022 after the initial search criteria timeframe. So I think we'll leave that off to the side for a moment, but that's just one thing that was we found interesting as well as a lot of the other docs in the community uh, that they just decided to add kind of one trial on later on.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, I think everybody listening can interpret that as they uh, please, but generally strange to change your uh, inclusion uh, criteria for a, a, a later published trial.
1: So they eventually came down to thirteen trials, six hundred ninety-nine participants with low back pain. Um, nine of the studies were looking at uh, tonic stimulation; five of them included high frequency. And uh, the six-month data that they felt was relevant came from one study. Uh, so you know the exclusion of some of these uh, landmark trials, like you said with the Sensa Sunburst DTM, you know, it, it, they excluded it because. It didn't fit their inclusion criteria of it spinal cord stimulation being compared to no treatment or placebo. And a lot of these landmark studies were looking at the comparisons of a new waveform to tonic um, or continued medical management. So it's, uh, you know, you lose all that great data that has been really the bedrock for stimulation, especially with the advent of um, uh, with paresthesia free uh, waveforms. So. You know, you're cutting on a lot of good data there. It, not not necessarily placebo-controlled, but just because it's not placebo-controlled, I would argue it doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad data.
0: I, I, and I'm, I'm going to obviously agree. Um, but I think, you know, maybe the one learning point for our specialty is that because so many other specialties utilize the comparison to placebo as the gold standard, where I think for so long, because... I mean, probably just because there are so many different options to treat these patients, that the comparison to placebo hasn't really been what we've generally considered to be the the gold standard, or or at least the the norm for a lot of these clinical trials. And so I think obviously we're gonna we're gonna get into bashing this study more. Um, but I mean, as as a learning point, I think you know hopefully we can learn that to really be have to have our data accepted by medicine, they still are going to always have this gold standard versus placebo, uh, double-blind comparison, which always, you know, obviously with, when you're doing an implantable device, the question is how do you do a randomized double-blind controlled study versus placebo? Um, you actually implant a placebo device or, you know, which has its own risks and can cause its own trouble for patients um and and so on and so forth right so not that we dive into that but i mean obviously i think that is something that from uh we every everything is a learning opportunity kind of standpoint that hopefully uh, we as a field can start to try to figure out how do we create these studies that are going to be wider accepted not just within our field or not just within you know spine surgery at large um but also within medicine that has these different belief not but a, a different way of
1: checking. Yeah, just because the FDA doesn't require placebo control studies for device approval, and just because it's expensive and difficult to run these placebo control trials, as you mentioned, with putting in what do you do, like putting a dummy lead, dummy IPG, just because it's difficult, doesn't mean that you know our field can we really rise up and try to figure it out. I mean, you know, there's a lot of us out there, and we can hopefully over time figure some way to create a study that fits more in line with other specialties with their placebo controlled trials.
0: Yeah, sorry. Sorry, didn't mean to uh, to interrupt your flow there, but that was Yeah. It was like, you know, trying to figure out how to make it a silver lining out of uh, something that I think was pretty dark.
1: Yeah. So, uh a lot of the the longer term data, meaning more than 6 months, did kind of get interpreted or uh, was pulled from uh, the study from Hera and 2022 uh in october of last year uh so that that one was a i think it's you know we have to talk about the study when we talk about the review i i I just feel like you know a lot of the, the key points even in their uh summary was directly pulled from this um and they compared i mean there's a whole series of other issues with that study and i don't necessarily need to go into all the uh nitty-gritty for that but there were some issues with that one
0: and i feel like dissecting that study is like is its own, itself which yeah stay tuned that'll be the next one because yeah that i mean I, I remember reading that study only to feel you know kind of double shocked that it became such a big part of this company. um but yeah yeah but yeah i, I agree it, 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 there's a lot of challenges
1: right and as we mentioned this one came out in october of last year versus when their initial search was going up to june so they know, uh, yeah, it was just added on later on which which seems a little bit strange for you know a such a large review study like this to gen, uh, then just add on the study outside of their inclusion window
0: and, uh, yeah and so i mean when you now are basically utilizing essentially you know two studies really to make an entire Cochrane review off of and the study with a longer term follow-up was extremely flawed just to surmise what the future yeah. uh will be will be telling you uh i mean you, know, you have a, a device that's implanted that runs a waveform that was never trial on the patient uh, that was a waveform right. that was never studied anywhere else before a trial with a massive attrition rate um, uh, and and a, a trial that uh that required the requirement for trial to perm was significantly different than what we use in the real world right
1: uh, two-point improvements in the numeric rating scale which um, I guess if your pain is a four and it drops by two, then that's fifty percent. But uh, you know, I wouldn't be putting in a stimulator for someone with a pain level of four to begin with.
0: Yeah, and so you know, I mean, very a very flawed uh, trial that I think got plenty of flack and then becomes the kind of bedrock that Cochran uh, decides to to base through. You know, one of the things that uh, you know, you didn't bring up that I think has always irked me about any time that I read something that's Kind of really trying to tear down things that we do in our field uh, is that nobody was uh, a pain doctor, uh that wrote that was a part of writing this um,
1: yeah i think they correct i think the main authors were not uh they uh, there was an acknowledgement to a position in uh, i believe uh, somewhere in utah but they were not a um, um, an author of the study
0: um, which which always i mean i think it's you know I, I, to me as somebody who does this who deeply about our patients who is constantly searching for ways to be able to help the patients that are coming through Uh, to have somebody who doesn't do what we do on a regular basis um, trying to critique what we do i think is i've always found yeah Um, yeah i mean I I I everybody it's supposed to be about the medicine or about the science of it which is i think the reason why they did it but it wholly takes out just like the actual understanding of what it is
1: and you know that kind of leads into just you know everyone I think everybody out there has bias. I mean, I'm biased, you're biased, the authors are biased. Um, but to have some other folks on the table, at least talking about the study and writing it together, um, which you know, obviously much easier said than done, but uh, that would have felt, it wouldn't have hurt as much, I guess, uh, you know, reading it, knowing that some of the authors also were in some field related to pain management, that they were on the, you know, had a say in what was being published at the end.
0: Yeah. And yeah, so I think that's that, that to me is a, a challenge. And so it, it's hard, right? We have to digest this now because now this is a Cochrane review that has been published. And you know we were talking all of these things about ease of delivering the therapy to patients. I mean, this is gonna be, at some point, I feel, I fear, this is gonna be a big detriment to being able to deliver appropriate treatment to, to our patients, right? And I, I, As of yet, I have not seen or heard much change as far as you know authorizations approvals I and mean, i know there's always kind of changes that are going on and there's some a few states that i think they were already in the works in terms of changing um their policies uh, but nothing that i've heard of as of yet that has specifically changed because of uh this cognitive review but i mean that that's a real concern that this might become something that truly changes our ability to help so many regions. and
1: then at the end you know we just uh We'll have less tools to, to help with our patients coming in. And that's, it's going to be at the, uh, unfortunate for the patients.
0: And I feel like we're now ending this uh, this episode on a real down note. Um, we started off with so much hope and expectation and all this fun about the, the future. And, and now we're kind of getting all Debbie Downer about will this really change what we're able to do for <laughs> our patients. Um, Jason, give me something good. Give me, let, let, take us out on a, on a positive note. Um, so we, you know, obviously we've got, we've got a lot to look forward to. We just have to figure out how to make sure we can keep being able to provide it. We get this approved um, by by continuing on.
1: Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, I think with the new technologies coming out, and you know, some of the new new stimulation companies that we didn't mention possibly coming uh, to our shores, uh, there's there's going to be more indications that'll pop up over time. Uh, there's been even a newer study that came out uh, this year. Uh, I think it was from a few months ago, but it was looking at you know, treatment for neuropathic pain, and you know we're not going to get into that. It was uh, by Fatima, uh, a study from Pakistan. It did show that uh, spinal cord stimulation did have superiority over other treatment options at the six-month uh, follow-up. So um, I think you know we're we're just starting this. Uh, I don't want to call it a battle, but it is going to be some somewhat of a, um, a conflict within our specialty and uh, trying to figure out how we can uh, get the message out that spinal cord stimulation does help with folks with lower back pain. But in addition to that, the other indications out there for spinal cord stimulation, are very, it's very exciting. And there's lots of uh, things to look forward to for that.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I mean, there's, there's there's so many things that we're just kind of scratching the surface on in ways that neuromodulation is gonna to continue to affect people's lives and, and is gonna be able to bring so many more options uh, for patients. You know, know, we didn't really talk about it, and we will at some future date. I mean, now diabetic peripheral neuropathy is, you know, on on label for three different companies now. Um, And so, I mean, you know, that's a a whole sector of the population that, you know, didn't used to have an on-label treatment uh, that that insurance is really looked at as a viable option to help them. Um, And so now, now it is, right? So like you said, as we, you know, our job is just to continue to provide good, tools and uh, hopefully a good study that will continue to support as we keep expanding and keep trying to you know do more and more to be able to serve all these people that are, are living in, with more pain than they'd like to and are having their quality of life and their functional abilities depleted because
1: can say <laughs>
0: all right my friend uh closing thoughts for anybody out there
1: uh read the study take some time uh make your own uh conclusions you know obviously we have our our thoughts here, you know, I wasn't hiding anything, but read it on your own and see what you, see what you think, talk to your colleagues about it, talk to your non-pain medicine colleagues about it. I think that's another important thing. You try to engage the community and, uh, you know, get feedback and do do some education and learn some yourself and it'll help the, the field as a whole.
0: Uh, I, I love that. Yeah, Re- read the study, you know, reach out to us, let us know what your thoughts are and see if you think that we got any of this wrong or that we're misinterpreting things. Um, best place to find, I think, either of us is probably LinkedIn um, if anybody wants to reach out uh, directly to us. Uh, otherwise, yeah, please share this and share your thoughts, particularly if they agree with our thoughts, uh, with your community, with the primary care docs out there so that as they're starting to go through and they're seeing, you know, these Cochrane papers and Cochrane saying that they don't believe that spinal cord stimulation is effective, and the problem is, it says not effective for low back pain. But every the headlines are always just read "not effective." Period. Um, people are going to start having questions about this therapy, and so you know, get out there and, and talk to talk to everybody about you know what we believe the, the truth to be, what we believe our studies to say. Right off, everybody. You guys, be well. Uh, stay tuned for those legal disclaimers, and we'll talk to you next time. Now for that legal disclaimer. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only. It is not meant to be medical advice. If anything discussed may pertain to you, please seek counsel with your healthcare provider. The views expressed are those of the individuals expressing them. They may not represent the views of Spinal Nerve Diagnostic Center.